Thank you. Okay. You didn't tell me he was going to do that. And that, you know, how do you follow that? I mean, I don't know. Um, this morning, somebody actually asked me, um, he said, I'm a high school teacher. I teach high school math. And somebody asked me, are you going to get up there and like start teaching math? And it crossed my mind. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that, but it did cross my mind. Um, we're actually going to uh, start with this question. What are you known for? Go ahead. Think about it for just a minute. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now, what are you known for? You see, that's kind of tough for us to address because, you know, we all have these things that we imagine ourselves to be, and then we have the reality of how other people see us. We have things that we want to be known for or that we think we're known for, but some of the time, the way people actually see us doesn't quite line up. Or maybe it's like this. Maybe you know somebody and somebody else knows the same person, but you know them completely differently. You ever have that on Facebook where you're like, I didn't know you were friends with them. Like you know them for different things. So here's our example. Uh, let's say I know Bob because I work with Bob. You know Bob because your kids play on the same baseball team. So since I work with Bob, all I really get to see of Bob is his work ethic. You know, we make small talk from time to time, but I would say that Bob is a hard worker, um, he's kind, polite, he shows up on time, that kind of stuff. But you see a totally different side of Bob. You see, you get to see Bob at the practices and games. You get to see him get super pumped and excited when his kid gets in the game. You get to see Bob yelling at the officials. You get to see Bob getting yelled at by his wife. <laughs> you would say that Bob is passionate, energetic, funny. Maybe he's got a little bit of a temper. You see, we both know Bob but we know him for very different things. So I want you to think about this question. Who do others say that you are? So throughout my life, I would probably answer that question a little differently from time to time. Like uh, back when I was in high school, um, I played football, I wrestled, so some people knew me as an athlete. I got good grades, so some people knew me as a nerd. Um, I liked math that, that tied into that. Um, but one thing I was known for, um, kind of by accident, it just happened, I was known for telling really, really corny jokes. Like, super corny jokes. My friends actually would classify these as West jokes. So if anybody would drop like a really, really random corny pun or something like that, they'd say, oh, it's such a West joke. And so, like, there were dad jokes before dad jokes were a thing. That's how it was. That, that was my sense of humor. I think Mike Lair would have probably appreciated my, my sense of humor and my jokes. So, if you remember back to when you were in high school, do you remember when the yearbooks came out and they had that most likely to section? You know, um, most likely to be president, most athletic, best couple, class clown. Okay, do you, guys, you remember those? Yeah. What if they continued that? into our adult life. Like, imagine what the categories might be if they were to do that now. Like, most likely to overcook the turkey. Uh, most likely to not fold the laundry right after it comes out of the dryer. Guilty. Most likely to forget to put on deodorant. Not guilty, I did that one. Okay, most likely to drive up with the coffee cup sitting on top of the car. Most likely to oversleep. But what if they actually took these categories and they went into some of the more serious stuff? Okay. What if they um, went into best person to work with? Easiest person to talk to? First to offer a helping hand? 
the person you'd call when you're upset. Those kind of things. What would people write in about you? So let me ask you another question. If there was a yearbook at your job, or your family, or your work, or, or here at church, what would others say about you? That can be dangerous, right? Okay. Would the stuff they said about you, would it be good? Would it be bad? Could they say it to your face? <laughs> or would they have to sign it anonymous, you know? They don't want to out themselves. We all want to be known for something. Sometimes it's just kind of hard to pinpoint what that is. Around here, we say things like, at the end of your life, when your life is nothing more than a story to tell, what story do you want to be told? So here's another important question for us as the church. What are most Christians known for? That can be kind of scary to think about. You see, if we call ourselves Christians, what we're known for is actually pretty important. And it was really important to Jesus. And Jesus actually gives a very clear answer to this question. In John's Gospel, in the uh, 13th chapter, you see, we find Jesus and his disciples. They've entered uh, Jerusalem. They're preparing for this Jewish celebration of Passover. And so Jesus knew that his time on earth was drawing to a close. He knew what was about to happen. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to be uh, put on trial and executed. He knew all that was coming. And so he knew he was in these final hours, and he had to get his most important message across to his followers. So Jesus and the disciples, they gather around uh, for this meal, and he does something strange to start this off. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus takes time here to do something kind of strange. He washes his disciples' feet. So what had happened here is they've been traveling around all day on foot. And before meals, they had to go through kind of the ceremonial process of cleaning themselves. They had to wash their hands, wash their face, wash their head, um, all of this stuff. But they had to have their feet washed. And it makes sense because once they'd already washed their hands and everything, they couldn't then turn around and wash their dirty feet with clean hands. And so this was normally a uh, job that was reserved for a servant to come in and do. In order to be entirely clean, they still had to have their feet washed. But Jesus does this himself. He takes on this role of the lowly servant to wash their feet. And as soon as he starts to do this, Peter throws a fit. He protests, no, 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 no. Jesus, you are not washing my feet. But Jesus goes on and gently reminds him, Peter, if I don't do this, you can't truly belong to me. You see, Peter and the other disciples, they're not going to get it unless he does this. So he continues to wash each of the 12 disciples' feet. He already knew what was about to happen. In fact, he knew that Judas was about to betray him. He knew that Peter would eventually deny him, but he includes them and he washes their feet as well. So when Jesus gets through washing all their feet, he sits down and he starts to explain what was really happening here. And he asks him a question. He says, do you understand what I was doing? You know, I love when Jesus does that. He knows the answer. He knows they don't. But he asks it anyways. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. 
And then he says that if you're going to truly follow me as teacher and Lord, you have to follow my example. He had washed their feet, and he was asking them to do the same thing for each other. In verse 15, it says this, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What Jesus is doing here, he's instructing them that they were going to need to take care of each other and look after each other. They were going to be on their own. They themselves would have to wash each other's feet. They would have to take care of each other and not expect somebody else to do that. You see, he was their master and Lord. He was the one that they were following. And if the master makes himself a servant and washes their feet, they've got to look after each other and do the same thing because they're no greater than the master. So next, Jesus goes on to predict his betrayal and death. He outlines everything that's going to come. He says, you know, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow. He calls out Judas and basically says, Judas, you go do what you've got to do. None of the other disciples understand what's going on with this. They start grumbling or mumbling and asking questions. He goes on and he continues to explain he's leaving them all on their own. And then he starts to answer this question that we've been asking. So if we go down to verse 34, it says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. So Jesus had already been telling them a lot about love, and he had already given them the two most important commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He had already done that. He had said, love God and love people. So what he does here now, he takes those two things and he ties them into his actions that night. Love each other just as I've loved you. And then he says this in verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is what we're supposed to be known for as his disciples. We're not supposed to be known for how good we are or how well we can follow rules. Not for how well we can quote scripture. Not how many times we walk in the doors of the church. Not whether we're pro-life or pro-choice. Not whether we're left or right. Not who we vote for. We're to be known for how we love each other. Is that how the world knows Christians, or are we known by how much we disagree? So how do we do this? How do we demonstrate our love like this? How are we supposed to love each other in a way that shows we are followers of Christ? The great thing about this is Jesus was the example in every aspect of his life. And in these verses, we see the example of how to love like this and how to love each other. He washed their feet. It comes down to putting the person beside us in front of us. But here's what we miss. Jesus was showing them that love requires action. That night, he didn't just tell them love each other. He showed them how to love. And in fact, if we go back, if we go back to the very first verse in John chapter 13, he sets the stage here for what's happening. 
It says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and return to the Father. Having loved his own who were with him in this world, he loved them to the very end. And there's a footnote here that explains that to the very end part. It says that it means he showed them the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love was action. He washed their feet. He demonstrated a love for them, all of them. You see, he washed the feet of Judas, who he knew was going to betray him in just a few hours. He washed the feet of Peter, who he knew would just back out and deny him, claim to not even know him. He took care of this basic need for them, and he became a servant for all of them. And then he asks them to do the same. So this love in action continued on throughout the rest of this story. He's arrested, put on trial, beaten, executed. You see, love isn't just something that we feel. It's something we have to do. And we have to do this regardless of the circumstances or our own feelings. Did you know that the followers of Jesus were not originally called Christians? They didn't refer to them as Christians in the early church. It wasn't until um, the people of Antioch applied this name Christian to them. In the book of Acts, we actually see two occurrences of Christ's followers being labeled as Christians, and it meant they were like Jesus, or they were Christ-like. You see, it was a label given to them because of the way they were living, because of the love they were demonstrating and acting out, they were recognized as followers of Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Are you living in a way that people would label you like Jesus? You see, if that's our goal as followers of Jesus, that's the only way that we're going to be known as his followers, is if we love like Jesus loved. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you this question. How do you want to be known? Do you want to be known as a good per person? Do you want to be known as kind, generous? You see, we all want to live a purposeful life. We want there to be a purpose to how we live. And I believe that Jesus can give you this purposeful life you're looking for. In fact, I believe that loving other people like Jesus loved is the best life you can live. Love and action can make such a huge impact. I've seen it over and over and over again in my life, and I'm sure you can look back in your own lives and you see that. You see that love acted out and you realize what a big impact it made. One in particular occurrence of this happened this summer. So we talked about it before. Um, I got to take some of our teens to camp this summer uh, with Pastor Ashley and Abigail Horsch. We had an amazing time. Um, we took 13 of our teens from camp. We brought 13 back, so that was a success. <laughs> okay. Um, it was fun, exciting, encouraging. It was exhausting. We were wiped by the time we were home, and we were all like, you want to go again? Yeah, give me a year. Um, but one part of camp in particular really stands out to me. Each night after we would have our evening chapel services, we would have a small group discussion time. And so this is where 
we would break away from the big group of campers, we would bring just our teens from Anchored Hope, and we would meet together after the service. And we would have these discussion times about the chapel service or about things that were happening, things that were going on. And let me just kind of paint a picture of what this was like for us. They were some of the most meaningful times, but they were also some of the most challenging times. You see, our teens had been sitting in service for over an hour. And we're going to ask them to come to a different place and sit for another half hour and talk. Teenagers have really short attention spans. Adults have really short attention spans, as I found out from my colleagues that were there with me. Um, And so it was very difficult and challenging. You can ask them stories later, um, or ask me stories. I got plenty of stories. You see the text chain. Um, It was so challenging to dedicate this time to really give our kids the best possible advantage to really connect. And so when we went to camp, um, we had this one girl who came with us, and I don't think she'd ever been to our church before. Um, she was a friend of a friend. She wanted, to, um, she wanted to come to camp with us, and so we said, okay, sure, let's go. And so she came to camp. What I didn't originally know about this girl is that she really didn't even claim to be a Christian. Um, she actually claimed to be Gnostic. Once we got to camp, we found that out. And um, she really didn't even like most Christians. This made for a very interesting first small group discussion when we're asking kids to share about their faith. Um, and so we, we kind of we dealt with that. But at that end of that first night on Monday when we got there, after everything was said and done, this girl was not having a good time. She didn't want to be there. She um, just was uncomfortable. She didn't like it. She wanted to go home that night. Wanted to go home. We were able to kind of convince her to stay for a full 24 hours at least. Give it a full day. You haven't even experienced camp all the way yet. And she eventually decided, okay, I'll give it that. By the end of that 24 hours, things had started to change. She was more comfortable. She was having fun. She was making friends. She was having a good time. Something started to change in her that week. So towards the middle of the week, we get to one of our small group times. And it's kind of that, if you remember ever going to camp yourself, especially, you know, the middle of the week, you kind of have those big God moments, um, partially due to exhaustion. Kids are getting tired and emotions are running high, and, but partially because it takes some time to get kids open and receptive to some of that. And so halfway through camp, we have our small group time after the service. And our kids started to do some amazing things and say some amazing things in this time. God was working in their lives. They started to open up and share about the things that God was doing in their lives. They started sharing about their struggles. Things like depression, anxiety, feelings of self-worth, friendships that weren't going great, family relationships that were a challenge and a struggle. God was working in their lives and they were all opening up and sharing. So on that night, This girl who had struggled so much, the self-proclaimed Gnostic who didn't like most Christians, opened up to us and explained that she felt so much peace and joy and acceptance from this group. Through tears, she expressed that she felt like she belonged. Later that night, she openly proclaimed to everyone that she was a follower of Jesus. So what happened? 
What changed this girl? You know, each night in the services, they'd have some sort of response where the kids can either come to an altar or meet with a pastor and pray and things like that. And I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember her ever going to an altar and praying in response to a message. I don't remember any of that, but here's what I remember. What changed her was the love of Jesus. A love that she saw acted out in front of her by her peers. I was able to witness that night 12 disciples loving like Jesus loved. Despite the fact that she was at odds with them at the beginning of the week, they accepted her in. Despite the fact that she didn't believe what they believed, they accepted her in. Despite the fact that some of them didn't even really understand what they believed, they accepted her in. I witnessed 12 disciples washing her feet. So how do we do this? How do we love like Jesus loved? I am convinced that this is what Jesus meant. I'm proud of our teens. I don't think any of them realized exactly what they were doing that week. I don't think they had a plan. I'm going to witness to this girl and I'm going to lead her to Christ. But they simply loved her. You see, I witnessed a girl walk into camp angry with a lot of Christians and not even sure what she believed. And she left a follower of Jesus. She was loved by others in a real, open way. Others who, they weren't perfect. But they loved her and they acted out that love in a way that invited her in to experience the good news of Jesus. You see, love requires action. For our teens at camp, love was extending friendship to this new girl, even though she believed differently than they did even though they had questions about faith themselves, it was extending an invitation for her to be real and open and honest and vulnerable. For Jesus, love was constantly choosing to see people in their brokenness and to love them anyway. To wash their feet knowing full well that they would eventually doubt him, deny him, and betray him. So what is this going to look like for you? We all have these people in our lives that are easier to love. We can easily figure out ways that we're going to wash their feet. But what about the people that Pastor Ashley was talking about last week? The ones that are difficult. The ones that challenge us. Rub us the wrong way. Are you prepared to wash their feet? Are you prepared to extend kindness when they're not showing you kindness? Are you able to sit with them and listen to their story, even if it's inconvenient or messy? See, if Jesus is our example, we have got to do that. The more we choose to love through action, the more we are Christ-like. And as we grow to be more like him, we get a glimpse of his heart. 
And then the feelings catch up. Then our heart is broken towards what breaks his. Then we can choose to put the person beside us, in front of us. How do we love one another? We serve them. We take care of our fellow disciples instead of arguing and bickering. We meet the needs of others even when it's messy or inconvenient. We serve and we wash their feet. So what do you want to be known for? Are you loving others as Christ loved you? Are you putting the person beside you in front of you? Are you washing each other's feet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for how you first loved us. And as we go through our day-to-day lives, Lord, help us to see those around us that need a little bit of feet washing. Help us to see those around us that need love and acceptance, whether they claim to be followers of Jesus or not. God, as we leave this place, I ask that you would guide us in the right direction and remind us of the times when we were loved and it changed our lives. Help us to extend that same kind of compassion and help us to act our love towards other people. Father, we put our lives in your hands right now because we openly admit we can't do this on our own. We're broken, messy people and we can't always figure this out. So Lord, take what we have and use us. Point us towards the ones that need your love. Point us towards the ones that need friends. Help us to start washing feet.